Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. Our guest today is New York Times bestselling author John Grisham, author of classics like A Time to Kill, The Firm, The Pelican Brief, The Client, The Chamber, The Rainmaker, Camino Wins. John, I could go on and on and on. Um, his latest novel is Suli, which is published by our friends at Doubleday. John, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine, Jason. Thanks for having me again. Thanks to Rebecca. It's always nice to be back at Quail Ridge. Yeah, we are so happy to have you here. This is the third time, John, that we've done this in the past couple years. It's becoming old hat, and I'm so happy to be speaking with you again. You know, we did it to, for the first time uh, three years ago with Camino Island. Hey, and we yeah. had Jill and Randall Keenan there, and we did a little podcast thing after to a huge crowd mm-hmm. in the bookstore. And that's, you know, I love to do events in the stores because there's just, they're they're so much more intimate and the fans are there and the, and the book lovers. And so maybe sometime soon we can get back to old fashioned book parties. Yeah, I hope so. I think that the day is coming and we look forward to having them back again. Um, John, I'm especially happy to be talking to you about this book, Suli, because I love basketball. Uh, besides my family, uh, literature and music is probably one of my great loves. Basketball, of course, is as close to a religion as anything you can come to here in Raleigh, North Carolina in the Triangle area. Uh, I know you've written about baseball before, John. What drew you to write about basketball? Well, love, love of sports. Uh, all, all, well, not all sports, but um, um, certainly basketball, football, and baseball, those sports I grew up uh, playing as a child and as a, an athlete in high school. And uh, I, you know, I love those three sports and I played them all. I followed them all. I dreamed of playing them all, you know, at the higher level, never got close, but um, I found out years ago that I really enjoy writing the short sports novel. Uh, the first one's bleachers. That was 15 years ago. And then uh, playing for pizza was a football novel set in Italy. That was about 10 years ago. Calico Joe was my first baseball novel, which was five, six, seven years ago. Uh, and I, I love college basketball. I mean, we uh, we live in Charlottesville, and we go to all of the uh, UVA home games. <laughs> Our son is a Wahoo, and he lives here in Charlottesville. And so we, we go to all the games there, or almost all the home games. We love Tony Bennett and, as a coach and the, and the program he's built here, and I know him very well. Uh, my wife is from Raleigh. Renee was born at Rex Hospital in Raleigh, the same hospital my two grandkids were born in not too many years ago. And then uh, she grew up in the Raleigh area. And then when she was a little girl, they moved to Mississippi, and that's how we met. So, But her, her family, they're all from Raleigh, and, and they grew up, um, you know, really rabid uh, basketball fans, Tar Heel fans. And um, our daughter went to UNC, uh, uh, she married a Tar Heel. My wife has a degree from Carolina. She's a Tar Heel. So I've got, you know, both sides um, uh, covered with basketball. We spend a lot of time in Chapel Hill and go to a lot of games down there. And from December through March, I mean, college basketball, especially ACC basketball, is uh, very much a part of our lives. Obviously, we're juggling two teams, and and uh, we like to go to um, – March Madness regionals, been to several Final Fours. Uh, so that's kind of that's our life, you know, in the wintertime. And, and so I know the sport 
fairly well and I always dreamed of writing a really good basketball novel. Uh, there are many. Uh, there are a lot of really famous baseball novels. Mm-hmm. Baseball, as you know, has a very you know, rich literary heritage in this country. Um, football to a lesser extent, but there are very few basketball novels out there. There's some great basketball nonfiction books uh, mm-hmm. that I read. So anyway, I just kind of wanted to do something different, but I had to wait for the story. And I, and I can't just make a story happen. I have to wait until something inspires me. Absolutely, John. Can you think of um, any other great basketball books that come to your to the top of your head when I think about it, the only novel that really jumps to my mind is rabbit run by Updike maybe, which is sort of related to basketball. Yeah. Um, well, one great book I read 35 years ago by John Feinstein was a season on the brink yeah. uh, about Bobby Knight and the Indiana program. That was mm-hmm. a real, uh, it was a very compelling read. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you think about basketball, you think about movies, you think about Hoosiers, and, you know, the great basketball stories, but there aren't many. Uh, a book I love was it's called Pistol, mm-hmm. the biography of Pistol Pete. Uh, I saw Pistol Pete play uh, for LSU against Ole Miss at Ole Miss when I was 13 years old, February of 1968. Our coach somehow got us tickets to go watch the game, and you couldn't get a ticket anywhere. When Pistol Pete played throughout the SEC back in those days, he played for three years. He played for four years. His freshman year didn't count back then. He played for the varsity for three years. He averaged 40 points a game for those three years, and he was unstoppable. But he was such a legend. Wherever LSU played in the SEC, every game was standing room only. You couldn't get, you couldn't get inside a Coliseum. And so somehow our coach got us uh, tickets, and we watched Pistol Pete as a sophomore uh, play uh, Ole Miss in – he, he scored 40 points with two men hanging all over him. He was just, a, you know, and it was a life-changing experience because from that moment on, I was going to be, you know, Pistol Johnny and my buddy was P- Pistol Billy and Pistol Bobby. You know, every kid in the country did that. Mm-hmm. And we were going to be great basketball players, and that dream didn't work out either. But uh, anyway, it's just, a, you know, just a love of the game and, 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 and uh, wanting to write the great novel. Absolutely. Thank you, John. And of course, we enjoy ACC basketball here. I grew up watching Tony Bennett as a backup point guard for the Charlotte Hornets, um, <laughs> which was a lot of fun. He's backing up Muggsy Bogues, I believe. <laughs> you know, Tony still holds the record, uh-huh. uh, the NCAA record. He set at University of Wisconsin, Green Bay uh, for three point efficiency. Mm. Uh, right at 50 percent. And I, uh, I asked Tony, you know, that was 30 years ago or 35 years ago. And I asked Tony, uh, if you're shooting 50 percent from three point, why aren't you shooting more than six times per game? That's what he was averaging. Nowadays, uh, if you got a guy hitting 50 percent, you're going to turn him loose. You know, he can mm-hmm. shoot every day, every time. Uh, really, if you got a guy hitting 40 percent from long range, he's going to have the green light. And so that was one of my conversations with Tony about uh, a lot of aspects of basketball that I don't know. I don't understand. I'm not, I didn't play it. I'm not a coach. I don't understand uh, a lot of the complexities to the basketball game. I, I know enough to really enjoy the game as a fan, but in the book, I wanted to give the readers maybe a, a bit more, uh, a little deeper level of knowledge about the game. And so that, that's why I talked to Tony and some other coaches about, about the game. 
Very good, John. Well, um, we've been talking about ACC basketball, but in this book, you write about North Carolina Central University. What specifically drew you to write about North Carolina Central? Yeah, great question. Uh, I really struggle with it because yeah, I could have picked anywhere in the country. I mean, I could have picked uh, any any area. Uh, as you read the story, though, you realize that when Suli, Suli is our protagonist, our hero, he gets his nickname. When he arrives here, he's 17 years old and he comes in from South Sudan with a summer showcase team to play in tournaments here, hopefully and hopefully be recruited or impress college scouts and be, be recruited by American college. So that's their dream. Mm-hmm. And so when Suli gets here, he's a good player, but he's not great. You have to be good to make the team, but he was not heavy. He, he was not, he, he did not show well in the showcase tournaments. And so I couldn't have Suli signing with UNC or Duke, or NC State, or Kentucky, or Indiana, or any of you know, your basketball powers, your big schools, because he just was not that good in the first part of the book when you first meet him. So it had to be a, a much smaller school. It also had to be a school in a, in a, in a, a, a conference uh, where if you win the conference tournament, you automatically get a bid to March Madness. And mm-hmm. I think there are 15 of those, if not more. Uh, so I, you know, I had to have a small school, but one big enough to qualify for the big dance in March. And that's why I picked Central. I picked Central because uh, it was just fun because, you know, again, I spent so much time down there. It's, it's, it's like our second home. Raleigh, the Raleigh area is like our second home. And so we're down there all the time. And I thought it'd be fun to, you know, write about a local school. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, John. Um, you just brought up South Sudan, so let's talk about Sudan for a moment. The conflicts in this region have been going on for a very long time. Uh, there was a very excellent book written by Valentino Echek Deng with the help of Dave Eggers called What is the What? That was released maybe 15 years ago about this. It's a book I always come back to in thinking about the trouble in Sudan. For our friends who are watching, John, can you give us a brief synopsis of what is going on in that region and how it affects our protagonist, Suli? Well, it's a long, tortured history that goes back um, probably hundreds of years. Uh, Sudan was one country, and it was dominated by the northern tribes, which were, uh, which still are, uh, Muslim, uh, with Arabic the principal language. In the southern areas of Sudan, you had um, uh, people who were primarily Roman Catholic Christians who spoke English. And those two tribes or those two regions were in a constant state of war for 50 years. The civil wars were raged forever. And even within the, the South, the, 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 there are warring tribes there because there's so many different tribes. And there's so many warlords who, who want to take power from each other. And then you've got the, the North was always meddling in the South, south business. And the South was always, South was poor. And so there was just um, uh, a long history of, uh, of violence. Then, uh, I forget, I say that I write this in the book, I think probably 40 years ago, 30 years ago, they discovered oil in South Sudan and a lot of it. And that <laughs> made things even worse as they started fighting over the oil. And there was a lot of it at $1.12 billion a year in oil revenues that and all the oil goes to China, to China. The Chinese swept in, signed the contracts and they get all the oil. It's hard. If you, if you have a car in South Sudan, it's often hard to find gas. 
because all the oil goes to China. Anyway, uh, once they had that much cash coming in, uh, it intensified the fighting and the North wanted more, the South wanted more. And finally, the North just kind of got fed up and said, okay, if you want to, if you want to have your own country in the South, you can vote. And so in 2011, they were allowed to vote for independence. And the deal was brokered by the U.S. Susan Rice was a crucial player in it. We, we, had, always, uh, we had always taken the side of the South, the Christian part, the English-speaking part, and the Russians and uh, Chinese had always helped the North. So it's a, you know, just another typical international mess we got ourselves into. But we really, uh, the U.S. and European allies really intervened big time and, and brought about the election with the promise of uh, a lot of support from us, and we gave it to them. Uh, the people voted, um, I think it was like 95% or something for independence. And South Sudan became the newest nation on earth in 2011, only 10 years ago. And it was a, hailed as a great uh, day for the world, a great day for democracy, a great day for uh, for Africa. And the South Sudanese people were just, you know, ecstatic because suddenly they had their own country. They had uh, a ton of natural resources. They had the oil money and they had billions flowing in and foreign aid from us and, and France and other European countries. And, and we, they, uh, I remember when it happened, I wasn't following it back then, but there was a great sense that uh, we had just created a great new country. And, um, it didn't last two years uh, until the two biggest warlords uh, started shooting at each other. And uh, again, and the, the guy who's still in power has the biggest army, <laughs> the biggest militia. And these guys are very well armed. Uh, they have so much in the way of, of guns and ammunition. They're very well armed by us, by the Russians, by the Chinese, all different sides. And they have plenty of money to buy helicopters and whatever they want. And so they started fighting again. And for three or four years, it was a brutal, another brutal uh, civil war in the South. The South Sudanese all killing each other. And the atrocities are uh, really hard to describe. Uh, they're just really impossible to describe how horrible the, the violence can be. And so the country is still very poor. The money has not trickled down to anybody. It's all kept by the ruling elites. Uh, and in Juba, that's the capital, and it's extremely sad. If they build a new cell phone tower somewhere for phones, somebody's going to blow it up. If they build a new hospital, somebody's going to bomb it. You can't, it's just impossible. The money has not gone for schools or roads or hospitals or, you know, and we've sent billions and it's all been stolen by the guys at the top. And I think in 2000, 16 or so, they reached a truce, uh, but every peace agreement is very unstable over there. And so I, I think as of right now, they're not fighting, mm -hmm. uh, trying to share power. But the same guy has been there for over 20 years, and he's the biggest warlord. And he's a, he's a soldier. He's a rebel. He's a radical. He's not an administrator. He's not a politician. He doesn't understand anything but guns. And so... Uh, it's kind of hard to be optimistic about the future of South Sudan. 
The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. Right. Thank you for that answer, John. And to um, elaborate on that question in your answer for just a moment, uh, when Coach Echo is coaching the Sudanese national team um, at the beginning of this book, the team that Suli plays for, he states that the only thing that will keep someone off of the team is conflicts of an ethnic nature. Why did he think it was necessary to state this? Because the ethical tensions are the root of all the problems there. Uh, I even included a scene that I just read out of a magazine article about in the refugee camps. And there are over 2 million South Sudanese refugees who fled because they had to, Mm -hmm. um, who are now living in Uganda, Kenya, Congo, other countries around South Sudan. And they're living in permanent refugee camps. And and the conditions there are just... um, are just you know deplorable, but um, he they've they've even had some of the ethnic tension spill over into the refugee camps. These are people who've lost everything. They've run away. They're desperate for food. They're living in tents. Yet they still have time to fight each other, South Sudanese against South Sudanese in the camps because of their tribal origin. And it all goes back to your tribe, and it's just it's very difficult to overcome that. And a progressive thinker like Coach Echo Lamb, who's been coaching the team for years, he's an American. He came here as a child and got assimilated into our culture, played college basketball at Kent State. This is all fiction, by the way. But it's, it's based on reality. He realizes the uh, pitfalls of the ethnic rivalries, and he you know, encourages his players to look beyond somebody's ethnicity. You know, They're all Africans. They're all South Sudanese. Let's try to get along. Right. And um, John, what sort of research regarding both Sudan and Sudanese basketball players did you do for this novel? Well, the research was uh, uh, intriguing. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. For this book, it was certainly um, an eye opener. Uh, There's no shortage of books written about Sudan and South Sudan. And I read uh, probably a dozen of those written by observers, journalists, politicians, the best books are written by refugees, people who uh, barely got out, barely escaped, maybe losing a family member, maybe losing their parents or whatever, uh, who, who got out and, and got into a camp somewhere where they were safe and then managed to uh, immigrate to the UK or to here or to some other place where they uh, got a break and got educated and you know, whatever, and became a success. Those are great stories. Those are really good books. So they're, they're, they're a number of those books written by refugees. Um, you can watch YouTube 
videos about the refugee camps for hours every night. And it doesn't take much to get a real feel for the conditions and how terrible these things are. The number of refugees is not decreasing. These are people who are homeless, countryless. They can't go back to their countries. And it's a humanitarian crisis of unbelievable proportions. And we know it. We see it on the nightly news. We see it, you know, in the press. We see it. But we've seen so much of it. It's just kind of we get numb after a while. Mm-hmm. But there are there are dozens, if not hundreds, of really great nonprofits who are, you know, try, they're trying trying to help. So that was an uh, that was research magazine articles. Um, I, the whole story was inspired by a magazine article that I read two or three years ago about a team from South Sudan playing in a showcase tournament in the U.S. in the summertime. And uh, how they just uh, won the crowd over with their style of play, their exuberance, their athleticism. Uh, they just uh, became the darlings of the tournament. And they were, you know, these poor kids from Africa didn't even have a van to drive around town in to get to the games. Um, and their coach was a great guy and a pattern to echo lamb after him. The coach said, you know, we come from a very, very sm- uh, small, poor country. Um, we do have a future. I believe that. And I want to use basketball to teach these kids some lessons in leadership. And maybe we can take that back to our country, South Sudan, where leadership is desperately needed. And so he was using basketball. That's what I remember about the article. It was really a a nice piece. That was kind of the original uh, inspiration for the book. So, you know, you, you ask where it comes from, where the research is from. It comes from everywhere. Just, you know, just actually today, the Internet has, the Internet has made research so much easier. You can find so much more stuff than you need. Right on. Thank you so much, John. Um, I do want to circle back around to basketball for a moment. There is an old saying amongst basketball coaches that offense can be taught. Defense cannot. Uh, how does this adage find its way into Suli's story? You know, I've never heard that. Yeah. Basketball, can, uh, offense can be taught. Defense cannot be. Cannot. Yeah. The, the idea is that if you are someone who's going to go after the ball on defense, then it's kind of ingrained in yeah. you. A shot can be taught. Yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've never heard that before. I, I, I'm a little bit baffled by it because here at UVA, we've got the greatest defensive coach in the country. Mm-hmm. And um, he teaches a certain style of defense that requires um, uh, complete teamwork, mm-hmm. uh, complete you know switching and all that, a um, very fierce style of uh, hustle and and a uh, commitment to the to the defense. And if you don't play defense, you don't play for him. Right. Uh, so I, I don't know if I I don't know if I can. Um, don't know if I agree with that. Let's say that. I'm not sure. Yeah. Hey, UBA fan, I'm not sure I agree with that. Well, let's approach it from a different angle. So Suli, um, when he is first recruited, both for the South Sudan team um, and maybe a little bit when he's recruited for NCCU, um, is a very good defensive player. Um, you know, I, I believe that the coach from NC Central first comments on him when he sees him swooping up and making this amazing uh, blocked shot, um, but he cannot shoot the ball. Um, and throughout the the book, um, 
I think we see him practicing and practicing and practicing his shot. Um, do you think then that um, an offensive basketball shot is something that can be learned and taught in that way? Uh, yeah, you, you have, you, you have to teach, you have to learn it. You have to teach, you have to practice it. You have to, mm-hmm. this is what makes some players great and other players mediocre. Yeah. It's, it's, it's all eye to hand coordination. It's, it's mm-hmm. quickness and eye to hand coordination. Mm-hmm. I don't care what your sport is, except for football. Where you can, if you're big enough, you can shove people around. When you play baseball, the hardest thing in sports still, in my opinion, is to hit a baseball coming at you at 95 miles an hour and wiggling and moving, you know, and you're supposed yeah. to, hit, you can, I've seen one one time and it's when I quit baseball, but it's, yeah. uh, it's, it's very intimidating. I don't know how they hit them. Uh, yeah. And you've got a split second to make your decision to swing or not. And, but it's all eye hand coordination, same in basketball. Uh, every basketball player has got a jump shot. Um, but the great shooters are, you know, rare. And, and, and what separates a great, a great shooter from an average shooter. Mm-hmm. practice of course they all practice hard though uh it's, it's an extra it's an extra physical talent ability to coordinate the eye and the hand and that's what makes a great jump shooter Suli, when we meet him uh can, can jump over the backboard uh mm-hmm. i mean he's he's very athletic and he's growing at a remarkable rate you gotta love fiction he grows six inches in one year uh, which is not done which has been done before it's been documented uh, and he, uh, he realizes he's not going to make it if he can't score. So what he does every day once school starts in September at Central, he, he, he is very, he's emotionally uh, uh, fragile because he knows his father has been murdered. He knows his mother and siblings have been scattered. He does not know where they are. He knows his village has been burned and he can't go back. I mean, he physically could not go back home from the showcase tournaments in the U S that summer. And his therapy is going to the gym at sunrise. You know, he's got a key and he goes to the gym and shoots buckets for, for hours. And uh, that couple with his love for the weight room, which he discovers here, he's inspired by another South Sudanese player who's really ripped. And he, uh, that plus, uh, you know, his, his, his work ethic, um, plus the fact that he's growing at a remarkable rate. And before you know it, you've got quite the specimen. And he just, we, we see him develop into a, a phenomenal basketball player. Absolutely. Uh, thank you, John. One more question, then we'll open it up. Uh, if anyone who's watching has a question, go ahead and type it into the chat. Uh, but John, here in the U.S., um, as we are doing this distanced book event on our laptops over Zoom, uh, we might take technology for granted. Uh, but in Sudan, laptops and cell phones and the like are not prevalent amongst the general population. Do you think that we, as Americans in 2021, can truly comprehend how hard it would be to find a missing family member without a cell phone? We know there's no way we can comprehend that yeah. because we're so accustomed to our cell phones and our devices and everything is instant information and instant this and what, you know, it's, it's at our fingertips. And when, you know, we, I think over time, we have slowly reached the point to where we're totally dependent on these devices and we probably don't even realize it anymore. You know, <laughs> I, I wrote a book, my last novel was called um, Before Sulu was a, a Time for Mercy. 
mm-hmm. which was set in Ford County in 1990, five years after the trial and a time to kill. And so it was pre-internet, pre-email, pre-cell phones. And it was really a challenge. And, I, you know, that was the last year I practiced law in 1990, 31 years ago. And we were, we thought we were pretty well, you know, up, up to speed with all of our you know, communications. We could get, we got stuff done. We had no idea what was coming with the, with the internet and technology and all the great things that have happened in the past 30 years. But it is, it's, it's very difficult to find a refugee. Uh, first of all, you're not sure if they're alive, you know, and there, there's so many, there are dozens, if not hundreds of camps where they, some camps are run by the government. There's kind of structured they're, They have food delivery services. You know, you know, they have certain, they'll give you a tent, whatever you can survive there. Mm-hmm. Other camps are just pe- people have taken over a farm somewhere and they're just trying to survive in, from the elements and, and they, they get preyed upon by gangs and bad guys and all this. So no, we, there are no cell phones or no internet, nothing in, in a lot of areas. Now in some areas, in some of them, some of the refugee camps are hundred thousand people there and they have developed, uh, you know, societies and cultures and routines and they have assets and they have some phone service and they have some internet service and all that. So uh, not much of that though. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's very difficult. Yes. To answer your question, it's extremely difficult for us to comprehend not being able to find somebody these days. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um, so folks, uh, go ahead. If you have a question and type it into the chat window, I've got one question come through and it looks like this question may, um, be a bit of a spoiler alert. So, um, I will save that one for the end. Yeah, let's don't, let's don't, let's don't give away the ending. That's yeah, the- yeah. Let's not do that. Um, so, um, let's see here. Let me, Pull up the other questions here. Um, Rebecca, I'm not seeing that other question pop up. Um, I'll go ahead and ask John um, as I'm waiting for this one to come through. Um, You mentioned Manute Bowl a couple of times in this book. And I mentioned earlier, I grew up in the era of uh, Manute Bowl, Muggsy Bogues, Tony Bennett playing basketball, et cetera. Um, Can you tell our friends a little bit about Manute Bowl and why he would be important to these basketball players in Sudan? I think he was the first star from South Sudan. Uh, He was seven foot, what, seven, seven foot eight. He was one of the tallest guys ever in the NBA. Mm-hmm. And um, he uh, became a national hero, um, nice NBA career, a lot of injuries being that tall. He always had injuries. Uh, he made some money and he gave it all away. He gave it all back to people in South Sudan. Mm-hmm. He, uh, English was not his native tongue. It may have been Arabic, but he learned English and he uh, became very well ed- self-educated. And he was just a very uh, smart, nice person with a big heart. And he loved his country and wanted, and he died fairly young. He was, um, he was not, I think maybe in his forties or something when he died, they had to build a special casket for Manute Bowl because yeah. he was so tall. And uh, he actually died here in Charlottesville, which is, I'm not sure why, probably at the hospital, but uh, he was, he gave a lot of money to uh, – I read one story about Manute Bow. In one of the refugee camps, they had a very nice basketball court with basketball goals that were glass and rims that were really nice and well-built. And it was money from his foundation. Mm-hmm. He had given he, – and he, he actually traveled to the refugee camps and 
hung out with the people and tried to help. I mean, he was a remarkable person. Absolutely. And we have a question from Bill here. Bill wonders, did the true story of Lynn Bias enter into your thoughts when writing this story at all? Sure. Sure. It's a, uh, uh, I saw Lenny Bias play on television. We, we, we weren't living here in, in this area in the early 80s when Lenny Bias played for, for Maryland. I saw him on television a couple of times. Every sports fan knew that Lenny Bias and Michael Jordan were the same era, and they were rivals. And most basketball people considered them to be equal. Mm-hmm. Um, and Maryland people to this day will, will fight you over who was better, Lenny Bias or Michael Jordan. And uh, he was, you know, just a phenomenal player. And two days after he was drafted by the Celtics, I forget what year it was, 84, 85. He was a first-round draft pick of Boston Celtics. And he uh, was back home in Maryland in the dorm, and he uh, um, overdosed. And, and he was not a drug user. He was not. He was a very nice young man from a nice family. But he got with the wrong guys one night and took something. He didn't understand what it was, and he – didn't wake up. And then Lynn Bias is one of the greatest, uh, one of the saddest of all sports stories. And I love sad sports stories. Mm. Uh, Calico Joe is about a guy who's a, you know, incredible, phenomenal baseball player who came out of nowhere uh, playing for the Cubs and set the world on fire for about a month or two and then was injured and never played again. I mean, I'd love, I love the sad stories. I didn't, you know, I didn't model, my book after the Lynn Bias story, but the Lynn Bias story is very much a part of our, you know, sports history. It's in the public domain. It's something we all know about. And, and uh, it's, it it inspired me. Sure. Absolutely. Well, um, looks like we have time for maybe one quick question before we have to let you go, John, um, were you given any access to the program and facilities at NCCU or any other facilities that you write about, such as those by the NBA's Orlando magic or the Memphis Grizzlies? When I first talked to Coach Lavelle Moten, uh, I said, you know, I want to come to campus and hang out, look around and see everything. And he said, well, you know, you can't do it right now because of COVID. The campus is shut down and they're very, they're very strict about it. And I said, well, I, I get that. I understand. And we talked about doing it later. Some time went by and I was um, – and Coach Moten was always helpful. Uh, he, he was very cooperative and, and – um, I think he was a little bit suspicious about what I was doing, as he should be. Anybody should be. Um, So finally, I kind of sneaked back on campus one Saturday morning, Mm -hmm. and one of the guys who works in the office there met me and let me into the gym, the Eagle's Nest, and I got to walk around and see what I needed to see. I needed to see the the floor, the bleachers, especially the – the uh, locker rooms and the training facilities and, you know, and he showed me where the players live and just things like that, that you have to have in the book. You, you, you got to get it right. You can't, you can't get that wrong. Mm-hmm. And so I, yeah, I did, I did get a brief tour and I didn't want to stay long. And, and, and because again, the campus was locked down. So I had to finish the book without going back. Uh, and, and I'll probably go back. I've been invited back this season to come uh, watch a game and say hello if we can do that this year. And so I hope to, to be back. Very good. And John, do you have a prediction for who's going to win the next college basketball championship? I have no idea. Uh, and that's, that's the great thing about college basketball because 
this for this this entire season, there was no way that anybody was going to beat Gonzaga. They were number one from the very beginning. Um, you know, Duke and Carolina were always you know top ten preseason, and they had did not have good seasons. Um, but it was Gonzaga all the way, and they I think they were even undefeated. I think all season long. And then uh, out of nowhere comes Baylor, who got better and better and better, and and they didn't lose. And so finally, the, you know, you have this great game, the final game that, uh, you know, it was all Baylor. Uh, Gonzaga never knew what hit them, and and, and it was a good, the Baylor story was a great story. But you, that's that's basketball. You never know who's going to come out of nowhere. Uh, and there's so many great teams and great coaches. So I wouldn't dare predict. <laughs> Right. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, John. And thank you for joining us. I'm going to um, remind everyone that um, you can order a signed uh, book plate copy of Sui for any of your friends. Um, it makes a great gift. And we sell Sui and all John's other books with free shipping for members of our Readers Club Plus program, uh, which we are currently having a summer sale on. If you're not a member of Readers Club Plus, you can get free shipping and discounts on your books all year long. Um, John, Thanks again for taking the time to do this. And we hope to see you the next time you're in Raleigh. Thanks, Jason. Always fun. I'll see you guys later. Take care. Bye.